uh, I felt like this team overachieved to some degree. You know, we, 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 we lost a lot last year, you know, off of last year's team. And, you know, had a very young and inexperienced team coming back this year. And to, uh, you know, to, to battle back off the, the loss in week 10 and go on the road and, you know, and, and show that kind of resiliency with our backs against the wall, you know, I'm really proud of it. First, I want to say what's up to Keith, <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely that was the main focus. Um, anytime we're going out there, that's that's our main focus is keep everything in front of you. You know, I went in on a passing situation, was third now, and Coach Fred said, just watch the screen. I was like, all right, I'll, you know what I'm saying? I'm take my steps, and I seen that he wasn't really trying to block me, he was just trying to take me up the field. So I had stopped and he threw the ball and I was just happy to be at the right spot. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Well, folks, this is it. The road to Salem is complete and now... Teams get on the actual road to Salem. Uh, we appreciate you downloading us and giving us a listen for week 15 of the 2016 Division Three football season, the Around the Nation podcast for December 12th, 2016, sponsored by the City of Salem, hosts of Stag Bowl 44. More information at SalemChampionships.com. And uh, we have the first time and we have a long time. Uh, those are the teams coming to Salem for the Stag Bowl. The first timers being UW Oshkosh and the first time in a long time, Mary Harden Baylor. In our intro, you heard Mount Union coach Vince Karras, Oshkosh defensive back Cameron Brown, and uh, Mary Harden Baylor defensive end AJ Finene. We'll hear more as we go along. But Keith, first of all, 98%, if not more, of the Division Three football fan base gets what it wants this Christmas, a stag bowl with neither Mount Union nor UW-Whitewater. But still some purple, and still the last Wisconsin team standing. New teams in Salem is a huge deal, but if you're a podcast listener, you already know that. So let's deal with three things up front. Mary Harden-Baylor, first, is anything but an underdog. Since its last and only trip to the stag bowl in 2004, it had lost four semifinal games in 07, 08, 2012, 2013. So this was a huge breakthrough for them, a long time coming. Blake Jackson knelt on the field, then lay face down, overcome with emotion. Bryce Wilkerson made snow angels on the field in Belton, even though it was 52 degrees at game time. Another point I can't stress enough is uh, respect for the year that Mountain Union had. All they did in a quote-unquote down year is win three road playoff games and come within a two-point conversion of the number one team in the nation. That's most programs' ceiling, and Mountain Union worked through inexperience to become a gritty defense and run game team that went toe-to-toe with maybe the best Mary Harden-Baylor team in history. I mean, I get it, wanting to see other teams share the moments in Salem, you know, variety is the spice of life, but dancing on their grave is a little gross. That roster was not a finished product, the, uh, but the expectations at Mountain Union, they never change. So the bar is, is so high that everyone just expects them to get back to Salem. And for that team to almost do that on the road at Mary Harden Baylor was really impressive. And if you were one of the folks who thought they had a pretty easy road in terms of playoff opponents, their performance at UMHB should satisfy you. That Mountain Union team squeezed all it could out of this season and hat should be off. The third point I want to hit is the continuation of the theme established earlier in these playoffs. After the evolution of the college game the past five or ten years to offenses run with myriad options, literally, 
Uh, it, this has been the postseason where the pendulum swings back toward defense, or at least proves that in Division Division Three, um, defense is not a lost art. John Carroll played three amazing defensive games in a row, allowing seven in regulation to Wesley, 14 to Wisconsin-Whitewater, and then 10 to Wisconsin-Oshkosh. Mary Harden-Baylor and Mountain Union, they came in to Saturday averaging 50 points each, and they played a 14-12 game that came down to a defensive specialist intercepting a screen pass. There were 39 points total scored by the four teams on semifinal weekend, and although there were fewer fireworks, it wasn't boring as each game was dramatic into the final minute. Yeah, I think uh, I might withhold judgment as to whether it's an entire pendulum swing because those are big long-term trends or or whether it's a matter of four really good defenses in the semifinals playing really good defensive games because, you know, sometimes good defensive teams get the benefit of eight turnovers and still give up 31 points, right? Uh, sometimes freshman quarterbacks throw three interceptions. Uh, that happened a couple times on Saturday. But if we're entering a new era of defense in college football, that's one thing. But I'm sure that we'll at least have those 39 scores, uh, 39 points scored in just the one game on Friday night. I'll take that gen- gentleman's bet. All right. Uh, that'll be something that we'll talk about probably in quick hits, I guess. Uh, either way, it'll be interesting to have something new to look at in Salem. Uh, Mary Harden Barrel hasn't been here since 2004. Oshkosh has never been this far. Pat Cerrone, he's been in Salem once with quarterback Nate Ware for the 2012 Gallardi Trophy ceremony. But there's a whole laundry list of things that the Titans will need to deal with for the first time. And uh, as I heard from the folks from the NCAA and the city of Salem run through the checklist with Cerrone and the Oshkosh athletics staff, I realized exactly how much is kind of planned out for these teams. It's not exactly old hat for Mary Harden Baylor either. So that will be a place where at least these programs will be on pretty even footing. No, but as that same meeting took place in the bowels of the stadium in Belton with Kerry Harvey Cutter, Brad Bankston, Jack McKiernan, and Coach Fredenberg, he had, this was right after the game, some specific ideas based on things he didn't like from playing in the Stag Bowl back in 2004 when the game was on a Saturday. He already knew, for example, that he wanted to practice on Tuesday, then travel that night. Before we get too far afield, let's again ponder what this matchup means for Division Three. Even though it's probably just a one-year hiatus for Mountain Union, and Wisconsin-Whitewater and St. Thomas were quarterfinalists this year, it does open up the door a little wider for other teams to dream. There was a time before the Mountain Union-Whitewater run and St. Thomas wedged its way in there. That was never going to last forever, and none of those three teams are gone. Each is a contender day one of next season. But it's finally someone else's time to shine, and I think the John Carroll-Wisconsin-Oshkosh game is probably the more encouraging one for the masses. The Blue Streaks didn't win six, they didn't win more than six games, Uh, in a season from 2006 to 2012, solidly mediocre before hiring Tom Arth and finding a transfer quarterback who helped establish immediate legitimacy. Then the Blue Streaks were able to maintain it and really uh, make this season what it was with the Week 11 win at Mountain Union. As someone pointed out on the site on maybe Sunday in our comments, that semifinal game isn't in Texas, if not for John Carroll. And maybe everything else breaks differently. The whole entire postseason Bracket is set up another way. Uh, Oshkosh, they had their first good season in 2005 and their first playoff breakthrough to the semifinals in 2012, but they aren't yet in in uh, every year powerhouse. Mary Harden-Baylor is that, but that's also a one-time women's college that started football in 1998. So if you're looking at the Titans and Crusaders as a breath, breath of fresh air, uh, you might also see them as inspiration for your program that someday – Wherever you are, you'll be able to build and perhaps break through to Salem. Both of these teams lost in the semifinals in 2012 and, and had some 
sad days and, and delayed gratification, but the day is here. We get to showcase two of our other outstanding programs, sort of like Division Two and FCS get to every year, even though they have recurring powerhouses just like we do. Yeah, you talked about the dreaming, and this is uh, definitely true, but with Mount Union returning so many of its players next season, those other D3 teams better do about 99% working and, and maybe 1% dreaming. The door is not nearly shut on the Purple Raiders. Whitewater might be on the ropes as a power, but Mount Union is not. Definitely not in my estimation. When we come back, we'll step back from the big picture and talk about each individual game. Keith was in Texas, I was in Wisconsin, but uh, I need to take this time to mention that this week's edition of the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 44. Check SalemChampionships.com for more information. And if you're making the trip, we've talked over the past couple of weeks about things going on at the game, and I want to mention a couple of specific items that are open to fans. In addition to the Gilardi Trophy Ceremony on Wednesday night, the Spotlight and Champions Team Banquet on Thursday, Team practices are held into this in the stadium on Wednesday and Thursday. Thursday's practices are open to the fans. Also, something new for the teams and fans this year will be a, a team walk into the stadium. So make sure that you're in the tar- uh, the tailgating lot, the parking lot, by at least two hours before game time. Because as the team buses arrive with the police escort, fans will get together and cheer on their team as uh, the team enters the stadium. That'll be a new experience added to the Stag Bowl. Salem does a really great job of adding something every year and elevating that experience so that uh, Division Three players playing in the championship game get to have that cool feeling. And I, I imagine um, walking into the stadium would be one of those moments where as a player you can kind of step back and be like, wow, this is really happening. Because once you get down to the field on a game day, you're sort of going through your motions, whether you're with the special teams warm-ups or you come out a little later, and then you go through your your drills with your your, your group, and uh, you're kind of in routine mode. Like, I don't really remember on game days ever stopping to think. And, you know, you don't look maybe, you know, if you don't play very much, you look in the stands and you find your parents. But you're really on championship day. Players are going to be locked in. So having that moment to walk into the stadium and be appreciated by the fans and, and kind of step back for a second and say, wow, this is the national championship. This is cool. I think that is is a, a great experience to add for the players. And it'll be cool for the fans as well, because a lot of times everybody's out there in the parking lot milling around and not sure what to do. This will give everybody kind of something to look forward to and uh, kind of focus you from, okay, I'm eating ribs and, and licking barbecue sauce off my fingers. So now it's time to start making our way to the stadium and, and think about game time. Barbecue sauce. I know, I'm hungry now. It's time for game balls, and uh, my game ball has to go to UW Oshkosh free safety Cameron Brown. No doubt about that in my mind. Certainly, I could pick out any of a handful of guys on defense for the Titans, but Brown made a couple of really high-profile plays that uh, really get magnified in a seven-point game. You've probably seen the photo on our uh, front page at uh, Steve Frommel of D3Photography.com, captured of Brown knocking away a pass from Marshall Howell's hands inside the 10 in the second quarter. That was one of three pass breakups Brown had on the afternoon. He also had one on John Carroll's final drive, and that's the guy who gave the shout-out to Keith in our Open. But uh, here's some more of what Cameron Brown had to say. Uh, originally, I was just kind of a free player out there and uh, noticed they dropped back and had max protection. So I was immediately kind of just wanted to look for him because I know he's one of their big threats. And um, as I'm running, I'm, all I'm thinking in my head is just don't knock him down, don't get a pass interference, and just play the ball. And, you know, it just played through his hands and, uh, you know, was able to get the ball out. For my game ball, I'll go with Keith Renicky for having a fine first name and as a representative of the Mary Harden Baylor defense. 
The 13 tackles and the interception are nice, but it's almost more for what he and the other Mary Harden Baylor linebackers and defensive backs represent. The crew plays five DBs and clearly decided not to let Mountain Union get any shots down the field, playing almost exclusively two deep zones and forcing the Purple Raiders to move the ball in small chunks. You can only get away with that if you have a defensive line that can get pressure on the QB with four and defensive backs who will consistently come up and tackle and not blow their coverages. And and really not a single one throughout a 60-minute game on the back end. It was a grind, and frankly, Mountain Union's defense played just as well, and so did both of the defenses in Oshkosh, but someone had to win it and someone had to be awarded the game ball. What tilts the scales for me is that Mary Harden-Baylor went conservative, as it is wont to do, with its 14-6 and 14-12 leads and asked the defense to go win the game when about 25 yards would have set up the game-winning field goal attempt for Mountain Union. This is with uh, about two and a half minutes left in the game. Mountain Union gets the ball back. And, you know, losing that game at home this year for Mary Harden Baylor would have been just a gut punch for the program. There have been so many times where they're right on the verge of breaking through and, and things could not have been set up better for them to do it this year with the game being at home, with them being the number one team. All that is on the line when they send the defense back out there with uh, 2.32 left in the game. And Renicky, A.J. Fanene, and the rest of the crew defense went out and preserved the win. Talking more specifically about Saturday's semifinals, we'll start with the early game, the one in the right-hand bracket with uh, Oshkosh defeating John Carroll 10-3. Spoilers, right. Uh, the lowest-scoring national semifinal in Division Three football history didn't get there by accident. Both teams deed it up well, and the total yardage for both teams combined was roughly equivalent to Alfred quarterback Tyler Johnson's first 49 minutes against Mount Union the week before. Anthony Meglin had no success going deep against the Oshkosh secondary. More on that in a little bit. Uh, but in addition, Brett Casper was 11 for 17, Oshkosh quarterback for just 81 yards, under five yards in attempt. Each team referenced what a long time it took for the teams to feel each other out, and I think that's most readily apparent in the third down conversion stats from the first half. John Carroll, two for eight, Oshkosh, two for six, or the fact that uh, each team punted away uh, the ball five times in the first half. Coming out in the second half, Oshkosh brought out the Wildcat, which it had not used yet in the game and definitely had some immediate success out of it. Dylan Hecker, who had five carries for 11 yards in the first half, ran for five yards in the first play from scrimmage, then ripped off a 28-yard run on second down to get into John Carroll territory. Luke Vinay, the Oshkosh offensive coordinator, talked about the importance of holding that part back in the Titans' arsenal. Yeah, it's been something we've been using here for uh, a couple of years with Dylan uh, Hecker and Devin Linsemeyer. Right. It's really, a, it's really, you know, those two are great backs, and it, it kind of gives us the best of both worlds. Dylan's kind of a bruiser between the tackles, and uh, Devin's able to get to the edge. You know, so it puts some some different perspectives on the defense. Um, it's not something people use a lot of, so you know, we kind of have that in our back pocket. And you know, sometimes we use it early in the game. Sometimes we kind of keep it in the in the fold when we feel like we need it. And uh, today was a huge huge time for us, obviously. Continuing that drive, Brett Casper found tight end Max Fuller to cover a key third down. Uh, Devin Linsenmeyer got a 10-yard run on a first down to get the Titans down to the three, and Casper finishes with a naked bootleg, rolling over Jovan Dawson to get into the end zone for the touchdown and a 7-0 lead. Meanwhile, Oshkosh defense continues to bring it, uh, but even as Meglin threw his first two interceptions, Oshkosh couldn't do anything with him. Blue Streaks held Oshkosh to just one first down following the first pick and uh, survived a missed field goal from Eli Wetstein after the second one. But the third pick came three plays after that miss, setting up Oshkosh on the Blue Streaks 12. And after three plays and minus two yards, Titans settled for a 32-yard field goal to go up 10-0. From there, 
John Carroll got a big scramble from Meglin, something Pat Cerrone will uh, tell you about here in a few minutes, and had a play called a catch on the field, successfully overturned by the replay official, and had to settle for a 24-yard field goal. But they got on the board and cut the lead to 10-3 with five minutes to go. But once again, you know, John Carroll just couldn't get anything down the field. Eventually, time ran out of the blue streaks when Brandon Lloyd got a sack to end the game instead of John Carroll having potentially two shots at the end zone from the Oshkosh 35. Here's Cameron Brown's take after the game. I thought it was a great call. Like he said, um, our linebackers uh, make the calls on um, what they're going to do with their stunts and stuff. And um, I think it was a great call by either Reese or Brandon Lloyd. I'm not sure which one called it, but um, him going in there and making that play was huge because... Yeah, as you know, like, you know, two Hail Marys, you know, anything can happen. It's better just get it out the way and then try and get, roll the dice, I guess you can say. Keith, I was telling the guys at the game that uh, this is the game you should have been at. Turned out that uh, you got a pretty good defensive battle as well. But your, your takes on the uh, Oshkosh-John Carroll game. Yeah, it was pretty cool because I, uh, right when I got situated in the press box in Belton, all the reporters and uh, SIDs, and game day personnel are in the box and, and we're watching the end of the um, Oshkosh John Carroll game on television. And just from a reminder how cool the semifinal weekend is where the game times are staggered. Both the games are, uh, are broadcast by ESPN. And even if you're at one site or the other, you get to take in um, the other game. Now, I didn't get to see most of it because I was driving. So I got to listen to a lot of it uh, on the Oshkosh broadcast and, uh, some, some they're actually pretty insightful broadcasts. So it, it was a, uh, a pretty cool experience. I, I thought the thing that I didn't the takeaway from this game that I didn't hear anybody um, really discuss or, or tweet about after the game is just how different it was from the first meeting back in September. Um, these two teams opened the season against each other, Oshkosh and John Carroll, back on September third. Oshkosh scored the first twenty-seven points of that game. John Carroll doesn't get on the board until the last play of the third quarter and end up being a 33-14 final in that one. And now we know, of course, that they were starting. There was a freshman quarterback for John Carroll starting his first game that day. And they they clearly had come a long way since that point. But but they were John Carroll was was to to a point where you could foresee them winning this game um, because they had gone through Wesley, they'd gone through Whitewater, they'd beaten Mountain Union. Uh, that this is, you know, maybe no team grew up as much over the course of the season as John Carroll did, and and the, this game was so unlike that game. But I think it also speaks to to Oshkosh as well, because you know, for a team that had some scores over the course of the season, um, you know, fifty one twenty nine, seventy seven zero, sixty eight seven, those kind of games. You know, Oshkosh from the start of November scored you know 40 50 points every game they they in round two st john's 31 14 they scored 34 and st thomas of course had the eight turnovers but they were able to to recognize what kind of game it is realize there's not going to be a lot of yards given today we're gonna have to play um you know kind of conservatively and and you know points are going to be at a premium they had done that a few times during the course of the season um, 13-3 win over Stevens Point. They had a 17-14 loss to Whitewater. 22-13 game to Platteville. So Oshkosh was built to play whichever kind of game was going to be, whether it's high scoring or a defensive battle. And they were able to adjust midstream. Obviously, they broke out that that one drive at the start of the second half where they threw the wild Titan in there. But otherwise, um, I thought it was remarkable that both teams were comfortable 
playing this type of defensive game. And uh, we, you know, where points were so hard to come by, but that neither team panicked or, or, or did anything desperate or gave up, neither defense gave up any big plays at any point during the game. Speaking of playing conservatively and play calling conservatively, I'm sure that's something we'll touch on in a few minutes. But before we move on to the Mary Harden Baylor Mount Union game, I had an opportunity to chat with Pat Cerrone after the game and hear some of the things we talked about. I was talking to Cameron about uh, defense calls because I guess you don't make any. Is that the is that well, the deal? You made five calls the whole day. I probably made five all day. That is true. Uh, I wanted to ask though about overall uh, defensive strategy, right? Uh, yeah, it, I can uh, tell you exactly what we did. Um, we played some pretty good quarterbacks this year, whether it was lacrosse, uh, Platteville, St. John's, St. Thomas, uh, St. John's, St. Thomas. Those guys are six foot five. They're tall. Uh, this quarterback is six foot, so our whole game plan was to make him beat us, and we weren't going to pressure him. We were just kind of, we were kind of just stay in front of him and just let him throw the ball. And uh, I told that to ESPN before uh, that when they interviewed us on Thursday. I said we just we're going to do what we do, and we're going to make this kid beat us over the top. And uh, it worked out literally the way we planned it. Yeah, because you guys completely took that away from them. Yeah, we, we took away their screen game. And if you watched them play the last uh, three games that we had, you know, they were they were getting it done with screens, uh, naked pass, running the ball, run pass options. And the whole goal was to take that away and not necessarily not take away the hitch or the short pad, but just don't let them, don't let them get play action, don't let them get over the top. So that was it. That was, uh, you know, right from the heart. That's what we, the game plan was to get some ball knockdowns, and I think we did today. Uh, I didn't expect the D lineman to pick the one, <laughs> but he did. He played it perfect. We lost contain one time where he ran for 30 yards. I think that was their biggest gain of the day, and I wasn't too happy about that because it shouldn't have happened, but it did. Uh, but it was a, our players did a great job of just executing the game plan to perfection. Take us through game planning for a team that you don't know who you're going to play until the week before. You don't even know if you're going to have a game, right? I mean, obviously, you guys are, I'm sure, collecting film on these guys throughout the playoffs, maybe. You may not have to answer that. I'm not sure if there's a, a pro prohibition against that. But, you know, you get those three films then from the, uh, from the committee once you find out who you're going to play. What's it like turning that around that quickly? I think we do a really good job with it. Um, we, there, there's a routine here, and we stick to that routine, you know. Uh, Everybody on this coaching staff, I have 25 coaches, a lot of them are kids, but that's really where this all the work gets done offensively and defensively and special teams. And I think we've been together long enough where, you know, the routine, we're pretty good at it. We can take you apart pretty quick and really get into the things that are important to us. And just the way we call an offense or a defense, uh, you know, it just kind of flows right into our systems. And... Uh, you know, Luke does a great job on the offensive side of the ball, and I think Stenny does a great job on the defensive side of the ball. And my job is to just get all the information and make sure that information's clean. And then we start, as the week progresses, just start thinking what we really want to do to a team. And uh, whether it's offense, Luke does it. Defense, I do it. And it's a routine, and you better be good at it because you only like this game. The, the the unknown, I'm not going to kid you right now. I don't know anything what's going to happen here in the next 
72 hours, and that that's not what I'm about, and that's what we're about. So this is going to be uh, this is going to be a rough one right now because we don't like not knowing what what the hell's going on. Right, first trip to the Stag Bowl. You have one day less because the game's on Friday night. You have huge travel. Uh, you have a couple banquets, uh, some press conferences, a uh, whole bunch of stuff between now and then. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, the routine it, goes out the window. The routine goes out the window, but we're going to try to find a way to get it done. So that's why today I'm not going to celebrate. We're going right to work, and uh, we're going to get this thing rolling. Uh, you got some guys a couple hours down the road who uh, might be able to tell you something about uh, playing and preparing for the Stag Bowl. Do you think you'll be picking the brains of people in Whitewater? Well, Lance already texted me, congratulations, and I asked him if I could call him later, so I'm not afraid to say that. I will call Lance Leipold and talk to him about the process, and he's always been a great friend. So, Keith, here I'm thinking I've seen the defensive game, you're going to go see the offensive game, and that's not what happened. So uh, I want you to take us through what you saw as uh, Mary Harden Baylor defeated Mount Union. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty quick recap if we're just uh, picking out a few highlights here because there weren't a whole lot of highlights. And that not that big of a surprise when you really get down to it. Both teams' offenses came in uh, averaging a lot of points. And, you know, the score that I projected in in quick hits was kind of the kind of score where Mary Harden-Baylor starts to uh, wear a team down over the course of the game. I thought Mountain Union was going to have to try to run the ball because they, they really weren't going to be able to push it up the field against um, against Mary Hardin-Baylor. And all that played out to even a greater degree than I think any of us dis- uh, expected. Uh, both uh, defensive lines really controlled the line of scrimmage. Mountain Union had some success running the ball, but they just didn't have – they couldn't hit any big plays. Uh, Mary Hardin-Baylor content to play – uh, deep coverage, come up and tackle. Mountain Union got a lot of, of um, great tackling as well. I mean, you just guys who over the course of the season are either really shifty or run players over just wasn't happening on Saturday. So, um, you know, to take you through it really quickly chronologically, first of all, when you come up to Crusader Stadium, it is a real legitimate football stadium. It doesn't look like a high school stadium. It doesn't look like a cute, quaint place that's dropped in the middle of a campus, like a lot of really great D3 stadiums are. Um, It's not the type of place that just has one brick grandstand on one side and then bleachers on the other side, um, or no fence around the field where you can just walk up to the sidelines. And all that stuff is real, you know, great, charming D3 stadiums. Um, I'm not necessarily saying this is the best place in D3, but it was the most opulent. That was the word I chose on Twitter. I think, you know, the most built-out place I'd ever seen before was uh, was Cortland State, and this is by far more fancy and and well done than that. It's uh, just an amazing place to to see a football game. Um, if we didn't love Salem so much, you know, we should propose having the championships down there. But in any case, uh, decent atmosphere, weather's fine, not a factor, and um, it just it just basically is a slugfest of a game where there's only one highlight in the first half. And that is a play where Blake Jackson kind of throws this ill-advised pass. He's scrambling and, uh, and, and hucks it up to TJ Josie uh, in the end zone. Josie kind of realizes early on he's not going to be able to get to it. It's, just, it's a jump ball, but it's even higher than he can reach. He can only get one hand up on it. And he tips it up, and Wykey Walker kind of a heads-up play coming from the other side of it. Behind it, runs, runs behind the tip catches the ball in the end zone for the only touchdown in the first half. Mountain Union was able to put a couple field goals on the board at the end of long drives 
10 play drive, 13 play drive, kicked a field goal with two seconds left. So they go in the break seven, six, um, third quarter, sort of more of the same. Um, and not having any success running the ball with Markeith Miller, um, Mary Harden Baylor brings in Dwayne Thompson, who is, um, player who had started for them at running back before brings a little bit different style of, of run. And, and immediately they start having some success moving the ball down the field. Uh, they hit a 25 yard wheel route to, to Thompson along the sideline. And then Blake Jackson, you know, when stuff would break down, he would just buy some time to scramble. He had a couple of 11 yard scrambles on that drive. One of them gets him down to the two yard line. He sneaks it in from the one for a, a touchdown. So Mary Harden Baylor is up 14-6. And they kind of got conservative at that point in the game. And uh, finally, you know, Mountain Union also playing great defense. No problem punting it back to, to Mary Harden Baylor, putting it on their defense to get them the ball back. So they, they, they go through the whole fourth quarter like this. And finally, Mountain Union is able to string together a drive where, they, uh, you know, they put together some first downs, found um, some some short holes in the zones and uh, are able to move it down the field. Dom Davis, their quarterback, uh, the freshman who earned the job midseason and uh, has really blossomed in the playoffs, scrambles for eight-yard touchdown run, and then it comes down to two-point conversion play to potentially tie the game. And this was really uh, – they had some insightful stuff to say about this after the game. Uh, Coach Fredenberg basically said the one thing they noticed on uh, video about Mount Union is that in a two-point conversion situation – they don't have special plays that they keep in their back pocket the whole entire season and only bring out for two-point conversions. That they basically, for two-point plays, Mountain Union just runs its offense. So Mary Harden-Baylor said, we're just going to run our defense. No, nothing special, just a regular play. And they had um, a the, the play basically sniffed out. It was double-covered. Davis didn't really have any options, so he just uh, threw it into the ground rather than risk throwing it into double coverage. Even at that point in the game, 424 left, Mount Union down two uh, at 14-12, and they get the ball back with 232 left. And actually at that point, I think it looks pretty dicey for Mary Harden-Baylor. The punt um, only goes to the 45, so Mount Union has 55 yards to, to score a touchdown. They certainly don't need a touchdown at that point. They need to get about 25 yards to get in Alex Laughlin's field goal range. Laughlin... Um, he made he made from 30 and 32 earlier in the game, but probably you know you get to the 30, um, maybe inside the 30 a little bit. You can try to try a kick from 45. There's no wind, um, you know, perfect surface. So you figure Mountain Union needs maybe a couple first downs. They have two and a half minutes, two timeouts, and they had been moving the ball, especially with uh, B.J. Mitchell running the ball at that point. And uh, it just comes down to the third down play that. Um, by now, by the time you hear the podcast, everybody's either seen or heard about this play. But A.J. Finane just kind of realizes it's a screen pass and uh, leaps up, makes this incredibly athletic play. And, and what really stands out, Pat, I know I'm kind of talking through this whole entire game here. But um, what really stands out is that both teams were were confident or comfortable letting their defense go out and win the game. When they realize that it's not happening today for us on offense. And Mary Harden-Baylor says with, uh, with you know, four minutes left in the game, they're unable to get much. I think, I think they got one first down and then end up being a four and out. So they punt right back to Mary Harden-Baylor, I mean, to Mountain Union with two and a half minutes left. Just no flinching on their part. They say defense, go win the game for us. 
and in a situation that I thought was pretty dicey. And if you really took a step back at that situation, as I said earlier in the podcast, the whole program, the confidence of the program is on the line at this drive because if they lose that game 15-14 on their home field when they're the favorite in a year when Mount Union is kind of um, a little more inexperienced and doesn't quite have the playmakers that some of the great Mount Union teams have. I mean, if you you, you don't beat Mount Union this year, you, you may never beat them. Um, all that is on the line in this game-winning drive, and, and somebody's going to make a play. It's either going to be the Purple Raiders or the Crusaders, and, and it was Zay Finene. And then, of course, everybody was thrilled at the uh, at the fake punt later in the game, too, where uh, Mary Harden-Baylor, when Mountain Union basically rushing 10, trying to get a block at that point in the game, left the wide receiver uncovered. And so Baylor Mullins uh, has carte blanche to, to throw the ball when somebody's uncovered, as most teams' uh, punters do. And uh, it's just usually not in a situation where uh, you give the ball back uh, at the end of a national semifinal when you could lose a game. So I know that's a lot here in, in one spiel, but it was a game with few highlights and uh, really, you know, a kind of a, a, a football purist game just as much as the game up in Oshkosh was. I'm going to go uh, one uh, one step further when you talk about uh, when Mount Union gets the ball back with uh, two and a half minutes left, only needing about 25 or 35 yards to get in uh, range for a game-winning field goal. I think it's not just Mary Harden-Baylor program's confidence or their stature. I think, you know, there's 246 programs, fans out there that are kind of riding the exact same thing. Um, you know, this is... Uh, as we've talked about in the in the past or over the past few weeks, this is a you know the opportunity for someone to go beat Mountain Union, and you know if that doesn't happen, if they don't get that interception or some other form of defensive stop, then Mountain Union would have gone, you know, four games on the road, and even in a year where they were down, they still could have gotten to the Stag Bowl by playing all of their games away from Alliance Ohio. Imagine what a deflating you know, uh, event that would have been for the rest of the division three fan base and, and some of the division three teams that you talked about earlier. Yeah. But it also says a lot about the, the coaching job that Vince Karras did this year, having to replace virtually the entire offense, um, the depth within the program. And that's the kind of depth that you build when you play 15 weeks every year, you're able to go recruit and you say, Hey, look, we just, we were just on ESPN last week. Don't you want to come play for us? That's the kind of stuff that 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 these trips to the Stag Bowl build and that Mary Harden Baylor and Oshkosh will now have the opportunity to go out next uh, this season and recruit their next wave of players on the basis of this trip to the Stag Bowl. These these opportunities on ESPN, I think, are a pretty big deal for D3 because, um, you know, as we all know, it's we're kind of in our our niche here and the, the opportunity to shine in front of the entire nation to get mentioned on sports center and all that stuff is um is is really valuable i think when it comes to trying to convince 17 and 18 year olds where they want to play well you talked about uh your experience with the john carroll oshkosh game listening to it in the car that's a that's what i did on the way back from oshkosh uh, to minneapolis i was listening to the, the second half streaming through my phone into my uh, into my car stereo, which I know is not a new thing anymore, but still to me is pretty is pretty cool. Um, one of the things that uh, they talked about on the the local Mary Harden Baylor broadcast, which is the the only one I was able to get uh, to come up in the car, um, was about you know Mary Harden Baylor 
um, I'm going to use the word being content to, I, but I think that's kind of the the vibe I got from it, even though they didn't use those words. Being content to play the field position game, uh, you know, again, you know, making gains a couple of times early in the second half in terms of uh, field position, even though the teams are just trading punts back and forth. And and yeah, Mary Harden Baylor has the 7-6 lead that becomes a, a 14-6 lead. And, you know, even though it was a one-score game that entire time, uh, you're right, Keith. They were very comfortable letting their defense win that game for them. Yeah, and, and I think Mountain Union was comfortable staying at that point in the game as well, even though they're they're down. Uh, you got to remember, this is an offense with with um, dynamic playmakers. Blake Jackson, slippery in the in the backfield, extends plays, buys time for for long plays down the field uh, to T.J. Josie, Bryce Wilkerson, Wyke Walker, all during the course of the season. And uh, and then they wear you down with with Markeith Miller and Thompson running the ball, and and that didn't happen. Mountain Union at no point was was worn down, and there were no plays there available. I thought they focused a lot on on Josie, and uh, that that's why uh, Walker was the leading receiver with six catches, 65 yards, and that deflected touchdown. But there just wasn't much there for for either team, and I, I thought it showed great confidence in in both defenses. And I wonder. Now coming in off these um, two semifinals where both teams played these outstanding defensive games, in, you know, in Oshkosh and, and Mary Harden Baylor, you know, part the cynic in you says, ah, we'll probably get like a, you know, 34-30 game or something like that. It won't be anything like what we expect because yeah. now we're all expecting this defensive uh, battle. Well, that's what uh, was behind my score prediction of like, you know, was it 31-29 to 29 or something like that in the uh... – in quick hits. That's exactly what I was thinking. Did not come to fruition, but that happens all the time. Before we move on and uh, talk about the Stag Bowl matchup, uh, a couple of clips from uh, Coach Pete Fredenberg after the game. It's just an incredible game, atmosphere, uh, you know, opponent, performance, all of those things were just incredible. And it was uh, uh, awesome to come out on the winning edge against a, you know, a, a team that has uh, obviously everybody knows about Matt Union. But we're just we're just thrilled, and our our hats off to our players, our coaches, and I'm gonna tell you that the fans tonight were just incredible. That that was just an awesome night. I mean, you always have some doubts and you you wonder, but uh, I'm gonna tell you the thing that's really cool, and it's and it's happened with this team. It's just to watch them grow and develop. And you know, we always talk about it being a process, and uh, it has been a process. And I just couldn't be prouder right now. They, uh, they, they, that's, they set their goals. That's what they're going to do, and and we've achieved that. Now we want to go win this game. And so obviously we got a, we got a lot of work to do. One other question for you, it's not, Coach Karras said that uh, the reason they didn't try to push it down the field is because you guys played uh, a lot of. I looked like I don't know if it was uh, too deep coverage or you know you guys usually have five defensive backs on the field, am I right? Yeah, we use five defensive backs, but we play a lot of too deep coverage. Yeah. Keith, before we move on, actually, and talk about the Stag Bowl, talk about uh, the uh, two teams that would be playing in the All OAC third place game, and uh, maybe there's an opportunity for that to happen. Uh, that would be a great game to have in Canton, for example, between John Carroll and Mount Union. But what I'm hearing... Your two-minute drill. Yes, I'm hearing in my ear from our producer... Begins now. Yes, yes. Go. Okay, go ahead. Keep. Well, the... the uh, you noticed... You noted that, uh, you know, both the, the Ohio teams are um, are out, but I think they're going to be around for a while. And I, I the, the big thing is that with John Carroll 
winning the uh, the Week 11 game this season. I think it puts a spark back in the rivalry. It it gives Mount Union a boost. You know, when when they're um, back out recruiting, they're they're going they're going to be going for the same kids um, throughout the state of Ohio, but specifically Cleveland, Akron, uh, Youngstown areas like that. Um, you know, even probably Pittsburgh area. You know, further afield, the the rivalry is kind of back now, and so I think that's going to be good for uh, for for years to come. You have uh, Anthony Megling establishing himself as the as the quarterback as a freshman for John Carroll. So you figure uh, as long as Tom Arth is there, um, they they you know they may have a four year starter on their hands, and same is in play at Mountain Union. With Dom Davis, who seems to be the guy, although uh, you don't know if D'Angelo Fulford or Luke Porman will be able to play their way back into the mix if Davis struggles next season. So Mountain Union has three freshman prospects um, at quarterback. And, uh, you know, even though they do lose a few key seniors uh, on both sides, both teams were so deep in in some ways that I think um, they'll they'll be, you know, immediate top 10 top 15 teams next season, and we'll be looking forward to that game. I'm, I'm safe to assume it's in Week 11 again. We'll be looking forward to that. So I think the rivalry's back. I think you have freshman quarterback, quarterbacks on both sides, and uh, that'll be it, – it'll, it'll make both teams better. Three seconds. Good job, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well done. Uh, after a couple of weeks off without running a two-minute drill – uh, that's a that's impressive. Well done. Um, I thought the bonus of of finishing ahead of the two minutes was not having to hear that sound. <laughs> if if one if someone's gonna go back and run the clip and go, is it exactly two minutes? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's it's two minutes. Um, and and before we leave the uh, the semifinals uh, for good, uh, we got uh, we get a you know we get emails each week. We get emails, um, <clears throat> many of which are not publishable. Uh, some of which are pretty ranting. Uh, but I want to. Throw this one in, Keith, that both you and I got this email um, from Mark Nyland, and I've heard from him a couple of times over the course of the season. He's an Oshkosh fan. Um, He said the the UW-Oshkosh-John Carroll game was one for the history books, not only due to the defensive battle, but seeing two teams who have worked so diligently to compete at the highest level of D3 football is more satisfying than words can express. And he signs it, uh, Titan football fan for life. This is, I, I, I bring this out. Keith, as an example of what having a team that at uh, a program that has been down for so long and now has built itself up and built itself up over the course of the past several years, what that can do for a fan base and for alumni and for former players and, and all sorts of uh, people associated with these programs. Yeah, you heard it on the podcast last week where students come to the off-campus field, attend the games a lot more than they used to. You know, you have to wonder how many fan buses they'll be able to get uh, on short notice to, to drive from, uh, from, you know, up, up, do they call it upstate Wisconsin? What do they call it when you're kind of up, up in the, <laughs> the part of Oshkosh where the part of the state where Oshkosh is. I think to it's from, Northeastern Wisconsin, I think is how they uh, go. It's having what normal people call it um, from, you know, that part of Wisconsin uh, to Southwestern Virginia. It is uh, certainly a little bit of a hike for both teams. Um, but I, I think this is fun for these two teams. But as you mentioned a couple times already, it's it, there's a reason for a lot of other, of D3 fans to tune in this year. 
Now, maybe the super casual fans who only know Mount Union and Whitewater may not stop as they flip through this game and they see it on TV on, on Saturday. But for those of us who follow D3, just a chance to learn and get to know uh, a couple of new programs, see the the creative offenses they run, creative defenses they run, um, you know, see some of the star players. These, they're certainly super talented offensive guys. We've mentioned some of the defensive guys who played well in the past couple of podcasts. And then I think you'll like both of the coaching personalities, too. I, th- I believe we forecasted this maybe a couple of weeks ago, but Pat Cerrone's funny guy. Fredenberg is, uh, you know, really likable in his own way. So you'll, uh, you know, over the course of this week, get to know them. Uh, we'll also, we also get to know all the Gallardi Trophy folks. So, I mean, I think for, for D3 as a whole, not only did we have this playoff that was exciting every round, right? There was these great finishes, overtime games, teams we didn't see coming. Uh, each round had that, had that drama. And then finally, you know, that drama paid off into a changing faces here in Salem, and uh, and now we'll get to you know just enjoy Friday night's game. So looking ahead at that game, uh, one of the things Pat Cerrone talked about a few minutes ago, Keith, was you know all the uh, top-notch quarterbacks that Oshkosh has faced. Uh, that's certainly a challenge that they will have once again on Friday night uh, because Blake Jackson comes in uh, presenting. I'm trying to think of where he kind of stands in terms of skill set compared to some of the guys that. Uh, um, that Cerrone talked about, and I, I feel like um, you know it's a, a little bit of a, a, a different, uh, little bit of a different situation. Uh, Jackson's a lot more dynamic as a runner compared to Erdman or Fenske, uh, even uh, Tarek Yegi, uh, you know Kelly, all the guys that he talked about. This is a, a little bit of a different challenge for them. Yeah, and, and the thing about Blake Jackson is, um, not only he's slippery and he, he buys a lot of time. Sometimes it's buying time to throw. Sometimes it's uh, it's to scramble. But it, it sort of you know makes a defensive coordinator question whether they want to even bother blitzing because you, you're going to send all this pressure at him. He's going to make something happen anyway. You might as well drop the guys back in coverage because as strong an arm as he does have, he does throw. He he can hit the 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 out from the you know the far hash. He'll throw it. He'll also throw some balls as we saw on Saturday. Um, up for grabs. So, you know, maybe given the way Oshkosh defense is playing, you know, maybe that's their strategy. And, and I, I think the, uh, you know, the the other thing that, that's super interesting is like how WIAC and American Southwest offensive lines, defenses match up. You, you assume that that uh, physically both teams uh, are, are, are around equal and that this should be a good game. But Every now and again, you get a 52-14 stag ball, so you just don't know. Okay, well, don't throw that out there. We do not need one of those. Um, yeah, I do think in terms of the battle up front, both of these teams should be very well-versed and well-conditioned to see the the kind of, te- uh, the kind of uh, line that the other side is going to throw at them. Um, we talked uh, pretty extensively about uh, Oshkosh's defensive philosophy in the secondary, trying to keep everything in front of him. Not too surprising, but um, and we'll talk more about that over the course of the week. You'll see other stuff on the website that um, you know we'll talk about those kind of matchups as well. Uh, and I'll be interested to see how that goes because you know um, John Carroll, you know uh, one pretty good wide receiver, uh, Nico James. Uh, but I, I think of the crew. You know we talked multiple times about. 
TJ Josie over the por- course of the past couple of weeks. Uh, Wykey Walker was the name we were all talking about coming into the season. Uh, Bryce Wilkerson's had a, a fantastic season as well. Uh, there's a lot of options and a lot of guys who will go up and get those jump balls that uh, Jackson, uh, you were talking about, likes to throw. Yeah, I mean, both of these teams, but especially Mary Hart and Baylor, have shown the ability to be whatever they need to be on a given Saturday, or in this case, a given Friday night, to win a game. If they need to buckle up and run it um, defensively, or win it defensively, buckle up and run the ball. Uh, it's, if it's going to be cold and windy, as it sometimes is in in Salem Stadium, or if, if precipitation comes into the mix, both of these teams are fine running it and playing defense. You know, even though Mary Harden Baylor's from Texas and uh, they don't deal with that weather a whole lot, they did have to play in a driving rain against Wheaton in the quarterfinal round. They're built to to be able to run, although they do like to do a lot of the the run pass option plays and. Um, in some plays where the, you know the ball may slip out if precipitation comes into it, I think that um, the the strategy battle is actually you know we can't even really forecast it because both of these teams are diverse enough. You saw with the wild Titan formation or um, defensively where they don't need to blitz, but they that they have the, the dynamic players uh, as linebackers and, and defensive backs where they can get creative back there. I think the strategy battle may be, um, you know, something that, that as we broadcast a quarter or two quarters into the game, start to notice some of the things that the, that the teams pull out on, on uh, a Friday night. I mean, I think the unfamiliarity between the two of them actually adds a layer for us as uh, observers and, and fans. Keith mentioned uh, broadcast. Of course, Keith and I will be broadcasting uh, the Stag Bowl as we have every year since 1999. Uh, game will be broadcast on ESPNU. If you don't get ESPNU, and many people don't, uh, or if you want to hear people who you know know something about Division Three and know these teams pretty well, uh, feel free. Please tune us in. You'll find an audio link for that on the D3Football.com website. We'll also have extensive pre-game coverage uh, live at the stadium on that day uh, in addition to all the stories that we'll write during the course of the week. Uh, one of the things, of course, that we will do in our pre-game show is we have, again, I think this is we've done that every year since 1999 as well, is uh, we will be announcing our All-America team in that pre-game show. So if you want to be the first to find out uh, who got onto the 2016 D3Football.com All-America team, well, if you want to really be the first, then you have to be me uh, and the rest of the team putting the team together because that hasn't happened yet as the, the time we're recording this. But if you want to be the first to hear it, then you need to listen uh, to and watch that pregame show. Um, and that's, you know, one of a, a lot of things we have going on. We talked about uh, Wednesday night being a Gilardi Trophy ceremony. Uh, so we will have uh, one of our four finalists will walk away with a 64-pound trophy. Um, hopefully a, a dolly or a cart or something as well. I don't think they'll have to carry it all the way back to the airplane, but, uh, um, you know, there's a, a lot of stuff going on. This is a really busy week for us. And it's the culmination of a outstanding season. And you, you at the beginning of the season, you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't know where the drama is going to be. And so we've kind of found it over the course of the season. And, uh, and now we've got, we're not certain who's going to win the Gallardi trophy. We're not certain who's going to win the Stag Bowl, and I think that gives us a reason to watch Wednesday and uh, Friday night. Keith, pick one key defensive player for Mary Harden-Baylor for Friday night. Baylor Mullins, right? Well, who else? Now, if you haven't watched Mary Harden-Baylor and you don't know this guy, uh, number 32, 
Am I? Yeah, you're you're not making that up. Okay, I'm trying to think. I was anyway. Find him. Um, he'll be lined up uh, in in the middle of the field mostly uh, as a defensive back, linebacker, hybrid. Um, he'll he'll be making all kinds of plays. He'll also punt for them. Um, you'll uh, now there are a lot of great players on on Mary Harden Baylor's defense. Hayson Adams was in the uh, Mountain Union backfield a couple times early in the game, and then the uh, the Mountain Union line uh, got a handle on him. He's number ninety six. Uh, number fifty is Tedrick Smith coming off uh, the end. I know you told me to pick one, and I'm on. <laughs> but you uh, never do. Well, <laughs> it's I did, like I, I asked I, you to pick a game ball, and you get seven guys. I did pick uh, Baylor Mullins, but I just figure if we're if we're saying guys to look out for, numbers to watch, uh, thirty two, ninety six, fifty would be my uh, my first three. If I'm looking at a guy defensively for Oshkosh, uh, we talked obviously quite a bit about Cameron Brown uh, on Saturday and here in this podcast. Somebody else to spotlight, uh, lest anybody forget about uh, uh, his uh, strong safety counterpart. That's Johnny Egan, the, the guy who picked off three passes against St. Thomas in the, the national quarterfinal games. That's a guy to keep an eye out for. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting how. Um, you know, Cerrone doesn't make specific play calls like that, except for a handful of times a game. Uh, Brown talked about how the you know the linebackers kind of call their own stunts and that sort of thing. And I think I, I hope that's a story that we'll be able to delve into a little more deeply because I, I think that's something that's uh, pretty interesting. I agree. Offensively, you want to give me an offensive guy for the crew? I who haven't we talked about? I think we've pretty much talked about the entire uh, Crusader offense so far. Yeah, I mean, except for the offensive line, we haven't mentioned them. Um, I mean, I guess if you if you're looking um, for an indication of of how things are going early in the game, it, it's you know whether Markeith Miller is rushing for two yards a carry or whether those runs are turning into four, five, six yard runs where he's punishing someone at the end of the run. When Mary Harden Baylor gets going, and even if they get get started a little slowly, uh, they they traditionally give that main back so many carries. Um, that uh, at third, fourth quarter, those runs really start to become punishing runs. So that's really who you, who you watch for the indication of whether the offense is uh, is hitting. Obviously, you'll see Blake Jackson. He'll do a few things to uh, to wow you. But but uh, if if the running game's working with Miller, then everything else, the the run pass options and the and the three options they have to go deep down the field are all built in off of that. Oshkosh offensively, you know. Uh, we talked about uh, Dylan Hecker, of course, because he's been uh, kind of the point person when they do go to the Wildcat, and he's uh, one of the key running backs for them. Devin Linsenmeyer, somebody else to keep an eye on as well. Uh, I think a guy who I saw um, used a little bit more the first time I was at Oshkosh this season uh, when they played Platteville uh, is C.J. Blackburn. Uh, he's a guy who's a, a kind of a uh, he's a, a wideout slash slot receiver. They'll bring him in motion. Uh, they'll run a little uh, fly sweep to him. That's somebody to keep an eye on as well. Um, and, uh, of course, Sam Mankowski had a fantastic game in the quarterfinals against St. Thomas uh, coming back from injury. So those are guys to keep an eye on on the Oshkosh side on offense as well. And, uh, you know, Keith and I will do our predictions in terms of predicted uh, final score and, you know, a little bit about how the game will go in quick hits on Friday morning. Uh, you'll get our take. You'll get the uh, other four on our regular uh, postseason panel. And we'll uh, handpick a couple of people from uh, each side uh, to give us uh, a, one more take on each of those games as well. Um, so we've got, uh, you know, we'll have plenty of uh, 
plenty of stuff for you here throughout the course of the week. Is it still a Friday morning production when the game's Friday night? I think we've done it that way. Um, you know, if everything gets done early, maybe we'll throw it out there at like, you know, nine or 10 o'clock on Thursday night. But uh, generally, you know, I mean, the game's not until seven. So what else are we going to do? Uh, that, that'll still be our thing on uh, our hook on Friday morning, right? Yeah, I agree. Before we wrap things up, a couple of notes I just wanted to throw in here. Uh, you know, a lot of talk about, of course, the Road Warrior uh, trip for Mount Union. They were actually the sixth team to win three road games and win and get to the national semifinals. I know some other stats were bandied about all week. I think this is the full list since we expanded to five rounds. Uh, Pacific Lutheran won the four games on the road and then, of course, won the national title in 1999. St. John's four on the road to go to the Stag Bowl in 2000. John Carroll, three wins on the road to go to the semifinals in 02. Mary Harden-Baylor won four in a row on the road in 2004. Wheaton. That's the one we were forgetting about. Won three on the road in 2008 to get to the national semifinals. So that's uh, got uh, Mount Union, uh, the sixth team to do that. Um, and, you know, also uh, as, as historic as this season was for Mount Union, it's the first time that they finished with two losses since 1994. I'm not sure how many current Purple Raiders were alive in November, December of 1994 when the, that second loss was incurred. But uh it uh, you know that that's an awful long time. Also, their first road loss this season since 1994. All their uh, all their key losses had been either neutral site games in Salem or uh, or in Alliance. So uh, yeah, 94. I was in high school. Were you in college in 94? Uh, not in fall of 94. I was working. All right, and then uh, yeah, we're 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 watching guys who weren't alive then. So. Yeah, I'm trying not to think about that. After I said that out loud, it's like dating myself once again. Yeah. Uh, and as we do that, this was Around the Nation podcast number 166 for the week of December 12, 2016. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of that coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podkicker, whatever you use to listen to your podcast. That'll help other football fans find it. And thanks once again for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks to our guests, Cameron Brown, Pat Cerrone, Luke Vinay, Pete Fredenberg for their time on this edition of our show. And of course, to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can catch us in Salem next week. Plus, you get our final regular season podcast on December 17th before we move into monthly podcasts starting in January of 2017. So we hope to see you at Stag Bowl 44 on Friday night. And always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram.